This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, and to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person, or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. For those of you that know that I don't do a lot of series is on Sunday morning, how do you do plural series, series is uh, on Sunday morning, uh, this is a series and I'm in part three. Uh, it is a hard series, it is a difficult series, but sort of a fun one. I, I, I think I secretly enjoy the more challenging topics uh, and I enjoy the challenge of trying to find that balance of truth, of not erring on the side of diminishing something because it can cause problems, or overinflating something because it's missing and no one's emphasizing it in the body. And we have a tendency with this topic of spiritual gifts to go one way or the other. There's some of us that have spent time in our life and maybe a good deal of energy attempting to throw water on this fire lest it overcome the church in the wrong way. Because we've seen the unhealthy, and we don't want that. And so as protectors of the health of the body, we've tried to turn down the, the gas or whatever the, the heat levels would be on this topic, lest it consume the church. We have the opposite side, which have seen all those people messing with the knobs and turning it down. And those people have a tendency, and they could be in this room, to turn it up a little too high where there's too much of an emphasis on something that, yes, is very important scripturally, but it shouldn't have that place uh, in the body. And that's part of the challenge that it is that I would have in trying to teach on this, because some of our best material for teaching on this is found in the book of 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians is a correction book because the church was mishandling this issue. And so it's interesting to go to that as our text and then have to reason through. It's like we need to remember that they were being rebuked. We need to remember that they were mishandling this, which should show us right from the beginning that even the early church could mishandle this. You know, we have a tendency to look at the early church as being, you know, the perfect model of how it's supposed to function. And we just need to remember that God seemed to purposely stick the letters to the Corinthians in the New Testament to remind us that they are very similar to us, that they can mean well and actually not do well. So as we embark upon this, I ask for your grace. I do want you to challenge the words that I'm speaking with the text of Scripture. I want you to be Bereans in how you handle this. I don't want us to respond experientially like, well, I experienced this once. I want us to respond biblically to even test our own experiences. And yet, I am not a Christian that doesn't believe that God intends us to have experiences. I'm one of those funny Christians where people are always trying to label me and put me in a box, and they can't quite stick me in the charismatic box, nor can they stick me in the cessationist box. They can't quite figure out what I am. And I'm not trying to be something. I think that's why. I'm not trying to fit into a box. I just want to be biblical. And so certain times I sound way too conservative, and other times I sound way too liberal. It's like, what's wrong with this guy? He's not playing the game the way we're supposed to. 
I want Jesus to be glorified. I want him to be seen. I want my life to conform to his image. I want us as the body to function in accordance with the plan as set forth in Scripture. So let's begin to uh, dive into that again. I am in this particular message uh, touching on, I'm gonna, it's sort of like, I know, I'm in a five-part series, but in the midst of it, part three and four are going to be on t- tongues and prophecy. Uh, can you believe I would actually touch those topics? And yet, if you don't touch them, they are like radioactive. I think the best way for us to handle these topics is to address them and is to actually say, this is what the scriptures say, instead of hiding it and say, I didn't see that. I never saw that scripture. That actually doesn't help. And even though this is a hard topic, and the reason I'm having to break it into two parts is because it does have a lot of depth and a surprising amount. It's not like just one scripture says, uh, you know, hey, you should maybe consider speaking in tongues. And then another scripture says, tongues have passed away. We're like, whew, boy, that, that solved it. It's a little more complex than that. And what I would say is that tongues and prophecy in the New Testament is something that is an enunciation and a bigger picture of the entire Bible. That we have mystery and then we have clarity. And that this is part of how God has communicated to his people throughout the ages. Mystery, where he says something, everyone's like looking going, are we supposed to understand that? Does that make any sense to you? And then clarity, where everything that was said suddenly makes perfect sense. And yet, if I was going to say, if we're going to err on a side of where we want to land, it's not to hang out in mystery and just to celebrate mystery. It's to celebrate the fact that he has made the mystery known. And that is the new covenant. That is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's that his desire is that we actually understand. It's not just that we just bask in this mystery, in this you know, poetic nonsense that we can't comprehend. God wants to be known. He wants his truth to be known. He wants us to hear the clear sound of the trumpet so that as soldiers we can move in agreement with the commander unto war. He wants us to act in agreement, in step, in stride with what he desires in this earth. But for that to happen, we have to have understanding. And so the good thing is I believe that God desires and intends to bring understanding. So I'm calling this the second sound. 1 Corinthians 14, 6 through 9. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues... What shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known? How will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise, you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, How will it be be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. I don't know if you've ever been in a church where there's a lot of speaking into the air and you are a little confused of what is going on. And this idea of tongues is one that is very uncomfortable for some people. And I understand why. It's been uncomfortable for me for most of my life. And yet, I do understand the topic. In fact, I understand it, and hopefully I'll deal with this in the next session. A lot more than people would guess I understand it. I just don't talk about it very often. Because to talk about it uh, 
uh, it leads to some challenges, and you can be very misunderstood very quickly on this. But Paul here, and this is one of the reasons I started with this particular scripture, Paul is saying that a tongue is actually not designed to benefit someone, well, a supernatural tongue, one that is not understood, not, one that is not, for instance, in our environment, English. If someone just had some gibberish sound that they made, or someone from a foreign country got up and spoke a, a, a message in a different language that none of us knew, we could say, well, it was interesting. It was fascinating to watch their face and their mouth move, you know, about their eyes. You know, they seemed to dance every time they made this one consonant sound. However, we would not get what they were saying. We could try and guess, you know, when they pointed to a cross or something and got all excited. We're like, I think he's really excited about the cross. But we wouldn't have clarity. We wouldn't know how to respond. We wouldn't have a key application from it. And that's what Paul is saying. There's certain things that bring edification to the body, that strengthen the body unto action. Tongues is not one of them which is an important thing for us to understand. It does not mean that it's supposed to be dismissed. It just means that its point and its focus and its purpose is not for the gathering of the body. That isn't actually what it's for. Mysterious tears. I've had various moments, and you guys have seen these too, but at Ellerslie it's happened before, where someone will come up to the front, and maybe we have like an open mic where people are either confessing sins or sharing things that God has done in their life. And someone will get up, and they'll just start crying. And they can't speak. And what's interesting is they are speaking, and you're hearing it, and you're moved. In fact, you could start crying too. And you sense you're interpreting you know, the best you can. Like they've, got, they've had pain in their life, and now God's moved in their life. And you're trying to put the pieces together. But until they actually stop crying and start speaking, you're guessing. You don't really know what it is. So I'm going to call that mysterious tears. And I'm going to describe that as the most of the Old Testament right there. Falls into that category where you get the vibe and you get the gist of what God is doing. You know that there's a Messiah coming. You know that he hasn't forsaken us as the Jews. You know that it's coming at a certain time. And you're even trying to guess how it's going to work. We're starting to conclude he's going to come as a warrior. We know he's going to conquer those that stand against us. We're coming to conclusions, but we could be very wrong because we're still trying to guess at something. It's a mystery. And it's a mystery that the greatest minds amongst the Jews struggled to compute and understand. And what's funny is, even the simplest amongst us as believers, Gentile believers, understand what they were saying in the Old Testament now. Because we have an interpretation. We have the clear word of prophecy. That second sound has come, which actually brought order and clarity to what I could call the mysterious tears. You know, if someone got up here and was crying, and we're thinking, oh, wow, God's doing this great work in them. And then they say, sorry, sorry that I've been crying. Someone stepped on my toe in the back, and I've just been just trying to work through the pain. We're like, wow, I missed that one. And that's very easy to do. In other words, when you have a mystery, you can only hazard guesses. God is interested in a clear word. The two sounds in the body of Christ, I'm going to call it the first sound is tongues. Now, all throughout the Bible, there's actually going to be firsts. And those of you that have gone through Ellerslie know that. There's firsts. Tongues is a first sound. It's a hidden, uncertain, indiscernible spiritual mystery. The second sound I'm going to describe is interpretation or prophecy. 
Now, some of you have been daring enough to read through the New Testament to hear about if someone has a tongue that they want to present, well, there needs to be someone who can interpret, right? You're like, ha-ha. Yeah, but that's because the tongue itself does not offer edification. We need a second sound. Is there someone with a second sound? We've got a first sound over here, but what we're looking for is a second sound. And interpretation and prophecy is a second sound. It's an intelligible, certain, understood enunciation of truth. The two sounds of Scripture. So I'm going to say the first sound is the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is a, is a very clear sound. I mean, you want, you want to say it, but it do, isn't fully understood. It's a hidden, uncertain, indiscernible spiritual mystery. I'm going to call it a locked gate. In other words, where you can see something, but you can't get in it. You can't access the life yet. There, it's there, and it's saying, I'm here, but you can't get to it because there's something missing. It's called the way or the door. And we're feeling around in the dark. We recognize that there's something here, but we need the key to unlock the door and enter in. And that's the second sound, the new covenant, an intelligible, certain, understood enunciation of truth, the key that unlocks the gate. Jesus comes and says, I am he. Jesus comes and does a work that opens up the gate, busts the doors open, and then he invites us in. When we see Jesus, we see the way to the Father. We see the way into the kingdom of heaven. The gate is no longer locked. It's a second sound. The effect of the two sounds, the first sound, we could call it the law, it is inspired by God but cannot save. It is merely a schoolmaster to prepare one for the second and only makes sense when the second sound comes. The second sound, grace, it too is inspired by God and it has the power of God into salvation woven into it. It inspires faith and opens the believing soul up to the rescuing power of grace. The second sound is holy superior. I've likened it in the past to a a ring with uh, that one sort of nesting for a diamond. And, uh, you know, you could say, well, that's beautiful. It's gold. It's it's, it's wonderful. Yeah, but it's like sort of has its uh, prongs up in the air like it's awaiting something. And that's the Old Testament. That's, That's the law. It's actually meant to show you someone, and that's the fulfillment of it. It's not for us to try and just keep the law That is only showing us our need for something more. And when that something more comes and it matches perfectly in that setting, it solves all the riddles. It's like, oh, well, no wonder we had these awkward prongs hanging out of this ring all these years. It was meant to hold this diamond. But when you see the diamond, you recognize it's not inferiority of the ring. It's just the purpose of the ring is to support something greater. The purpose of the first sound is only to prepare you for the second. It's not to be the replacement. It's not to be the sound of sounds. It's to be merely that which points us to the sound. The book of 1 Corinthians. So here's a summary for you. Hey, church, yes, you do have liberty, but you must leverage that liberty lovingly. It's a great summary. Don't you wish we could just walk through the Bible and have a summary for each book like that? This is what it is. In other words, the church at Corinth has discovered something, and that Jesus has set them free. However, if you use that freedom, you, and you don't have a governance to it, you can really cause havoc. 
There's a lot of people today in the church that live in freedom, but don't leverage that liberty that they have with love. And so what Paul is going to do is he's going to say, yes, you have liberty, but you need to wear that liberty with love. Because I could have freedom in my soul. Like the illustration, 1 Corinthians 11, where you have a woman with a head covering. And in that time period especially, a head covering was a symbol of submission. And only a prostitute did not have a head covering on. That was a woman who was rogue and renegade and disregarding and disrespectful of her husband and of everyone else around her. She was not a woman under authority. And so a woman in the church is sort of like, I don't need this thing. I've been set free by Christ. She could be accurate in her reasoning, except for the point that when she uses this newfound liver that she has, she's showing disrespect and unlove to the world around her, starting with her husband and the community and the culture of believers around her. Suddenly she's an offense And these believers are struggling with this because someone has leveraged their liberty in Christ, but in an unloving fashion. So what Paul is coming in and doing is he's saying, guys, here's love. You need to wear love as a chief attribute in everything you do. And so though you are set free, yes, and I do not want to put you under bondage, love is actually how you ride this stallion. You need a harness. And you are not just able to do anything and everything you have a whim and a desire to do. You must do things that please God. You have been set free from pleasing yourself unto a new way of living called love so that you can please God. Before, when you were living in the lusts of your flesh, you could not please God. But now you have been set free to be able to please God. You have been set free for something higher than serving the flesh. And that's 1 Corinthians. So the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, boy, some of you that know your landscape of Scripture, this is just one of those books where you just sort of like look the other way and keep walking. Keep walking, kids. Keep walking. Because it just, it creates challenges. There's a whole sector of the church of Jesus Christ today that hangs out in 1 Corinthians 14. They have a tough time getting out of 1 Corinthians 14. Then we have a whole bunch of church people that will never get close to 1 Corinthians 14. They'll be everywhere in Scripture but 1 Corinthians 14. Great ironies. So here's a a summary of 1 Corinthians 14. Hey, church, yes, you do have special gifts given to you by the Holy Spirit, but you must understand that these gifts were given to build up the body of Christ and not to splinter it into pieces. These precious gifts were entrusted to you to make stronger the body, to bring order unto the body, and to make the body more effective. Is this how you are using them? So you can understand if people are making denominations based around spiritual gifts, just think about this. The whole point of those spiritual gifts is to bring us together and to build us stronger. It doesn't make a lot of sense to wield spiritual gifts as your chief definition of like, this is why I separate from you. That is the exact opposite direction of why God is imparting his grace to us. And yet, we have lines of division all around this point. And I could start bringing up certain things. There's denominations that are divided over the issue of when you are filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you, are, you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you should speak in tongues. And whew, it's a line of division with other charismatic or Pentecostal-leaning churches. 
And these divisions are so contrary to the entire book of 1 Corinthians, which is saying, I desire that you're all of one mind and that you're unified. That you think the same things, that you work through these things together as a body. God has given us grace so that we could be built up, not so that we could splinter over it. First the foreign tongue, and then the Spirit's interpretation. I know, if you're a little uncomfortable with this, that's sort of part of the fun of going through this series. The first, and then the second. It's a study in mystery. So I'm going to go back into the Old Testament to sort of show this same mystery and how it is solved as we move forward into a second sound. Musterion. It's to shut the mouth, maintain a secret, a mystery, something hidden, a secret counsel. So this word is actually used quite a bit in the New Testament. Romans 16.25, Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and preach in the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the musterion, which was kept secret since the world began. So there seems to be this musterion, this mystery that has been hidden. It is what we could call a first sound. It's there all throughout the Old Testament. It's there, but it's hidden. It's kept in sort of a foreign language, if you will, a spiritual language, and only a spiritual-minded person can discern it and un unpack it. You need the Holy Spirit. You actually need the revelation of Jesus Christ to make sense of this. Otherwise, it remains a mystery. But it's been there the whole time. It's like someone getting up and speaking in tongues, and all of us are like, what in the world are they saying? And then one day you suddenly learn that tongue, and you're like, well, they were saying that the whole time. They were getting up every Sunday and hollering about that, and I couldn't hear it. But now suddenly you speak that language, and those words make sense. 1 Corinthians 2.7, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mustadion, in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. Ephesians 1.9, having made known unto us the mystery, the mustadion of his will, according to his good pleasure which he has purposed in himself. So where is the solution to the mystery? Where is that which solves and interprets the mystery? It's in himself. Ephesians 3, 3 through 4, and then verse 9. How that by revelation he made known unto me the mysterion, as I, the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mysterion of Christ, in the mystery of Christ. So Paul seems to have some knowledge, some background in this thing called the, the mysterion of Christ. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of this mystery which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. Jesus, now this looks like a semester at Ellerslie, because this uh, one screen has, been, has popped up many times over the years at Ellerslie. Jesus, the basic tool for rightly handling the word. The reason at Ellerslie we are so passionate about Jesus as the chief, I'm going to use a big word, hermeneutic. It's the tool. If you had a toolbox of the most important tools of how to rightly divide the scriptures and rightly handle the scriptures, rightly interpret the scriptures, and rightly apply the scriptures, that would be your toolbox. That's called hermeneutics. So it's a big word and unnecessary for you to know. However, you can understand when I say Jesus is the chief hermeneutical tool. He is what is needed. If you want to rightly handle the Bible, you need Jesus. 
It's that simple. And it sounds funny. At first, it sounds like a pat answer, like, yeah, come to Jesus, pray a prayer. But you actually need the person of Jesus. The person of Jesus is no small character in the Bible. He is the essence of that Bible. He is what it all points to. It is all about him. And so all the way from the beginning, most people think that Jesus is going to crop up, you know, you know, two-thirds of the way in after 39 books of the Bible, then suddenly Jesus sort of appears. And when in actuality, he's the one that created the heavens and the earth. And so obviously he's been around a while, guys, and he's known by John as the Word of God, and the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. So the very one who is the the author of all of this is also the finisher of all of this. This is from him and to him. This is all about him. So if you don't know Jesus and you don't have that chief second sound in the mix, you, are, you have to settle for a mystery forever and always. And you will forever live in that hidden zone of not fully comprehending these things. But when you have Jesus, he unlocks that mystery. John 5, 39 through 40, search the scriptures, says Jesus, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me, and you will not come to me that you might have life. Luke 24, 45, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus, after his resurrection, is walking with those disciples, and he says, then he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. Luke 24, 27, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. John 5, 46, for had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Romans 16, 25 through 27, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, According to the revelation of the mystery, there's that musterion again, kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures, made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. There's a mystery, and it's been made known. It was made known through Jesus Christ. The two sounds of the word, the first sound, we'll call it the word of God in text, and I'm going to call that a treasure map. Now, I don't want to denigrate it or dismiss it or seem to relegate it in, in some value by calling it a treasure map. However, it's, very, very, it's a very good illustration in the sense that a treasure map has extreme value, and you don't want to lose that treasure map. You don't want to alter that treasure map because that treasure map is the one thing that leads you to the treasure. But the treasure is really the point of the treasure map. And that's the same thing. I'm giving you this idea of first and second sounds. The first sound has value, and I do not want to denigrate it. But it's there to lead you to something. The first sound is meant to bait you, just like that ring with that, uh, I'm trying to think of what that little area of the ring is called that has the prongs up. I know there's a name for it. I can't remember it. Setting. Someone who has a ring on their finger knows that, huh? A setting of the ring. The first sound has a setting. It is begging a second sound. It is begging that something finish it. This can't stand alone. This doesn't make sense. But with this second sound, it does make sense. 
Praise God for second sounds. And praise God that the church doesn't need to be built around first sounds. Otherwise, we're even more uncomfortable. This is already an uncomfortable topic, right? But could you imagine if I have to conclude, yes, we're all based around first sounds. This is just going to be a bunch of mealy-mouthed confusion. That is not how God designed the church. So the first sound is the word of God in text, the treasure map. The second sound is the word of God in person, the treasure. Again, I don't want to, that could sound like I'm denigrating the word of God in text. It's like you're calling it a first sound. I'm saying it is begging you to see the real point of it. The text itself does not save you. It leads you to the one who can. The Jews had the text and Jesus has to rebuke them saying, you think you have life there, but the life is found in me. The text leads us to the answer. It's a first sound leading us to the second. The interpreter, the key to unlock the mystery, the unknown tongue. So all throughout the Bible, we have this idea of an interpreter, a prophet, someone who's going to take the confusion, the morass of this world and speak right through it and bring clarity in the midst of confusion. We also have a character, Joseph, who is very, very similar to Christ. If you study his life, it's like profound, right? And he has a strange gift of interpretation. And he takes mysteries and he makes them known. And of course, that is a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament, that he is going to take the mystery, the great dream of, uh, of Pharaoh that doesn't make any sense to any of us, and yet he's going to come in and bring clarity to it and then rule the nations. The two offerings. So this is Old Testament, uh, where we're going to go through some twos. And those of you that have been through Ellerslie, you've, you've heard me talk on twos. I don't want to say ad nauseum because that might mislead you to think it's a bad thing that I keep repeating myself on this. Hopefully it is not ad nauseum. It is actually every time I get to the topic, you're like, yes, I can't wait to go through this again. However, I keep repeating myself on this because it is one of the key helps and interpretation tools that we have to understand the entire scriptures. The two offerings, Cain and Abel, so that's Genesis 4, 1 through 8. So Cain is a firstborn and Abel is a secondborn. I don't know if you've ever felt bad for Cain, uh, but it's sort of like the guy goes to all this work and gets his little pile, his offering on the altar, and then God is not, does not accept it, is not pleased with it. And then Abel comes along with a firstling from his flock and sacrifices it, and God is pleased. And you can sort of understand. I don't know if you've ever identified with Cain in this. It's like, that poor guy. God seems so arbitrary. And what, when we see Cain and Abel, we see a mystery is what we see. However, that mystery is solved in Jesus Christ. Now, most of us have never thought of applying Jesus Christ to Cain and Abel. What do Cain and Abel have to do with Jesus Christ? Well, it has a lot to do with it. There's a reason why these stories are put in Scripture. And they're all there as a first sound to show us the second sound. It's all being leveraged by the Spirit of God. So sweat and blood is one of the things that we could bring out of that story. The first, the sweat and blood of Cain, the fruit of man's labor. And that's not accepted. You know, ironically, you could test me on this all throughout Scripture, but the, the sweat and blood of man's own labor to appease God will never satisfy God. And God's making that clear in the very first sacrifice here that we're seeing of Cain and Abel. It's like, yeah, that, that's not going to please me. But what does please him is this second offering. And I'm going to say sweat and blood. 
the life of the firstling of the flock, where this life of a lamb or a ram is going to be given up. And it's not Abel's sweat and blood, it's actually the sweat and blood of a little lamb, if you want to say it that way, that is going to please God and be accepted. And what you're going to see is the first is not acceptable, the second is. And you could say that is so arbitrary. God doesn't seem to make sense here. Oh, he does make sense. But you have to recognize this hangs out as a mystery in the Old Testament to the point where I'm guessing there were a few Jews that were wondering about it too. It's like, why is it that way? And yet when you get to Christ, you begin to recognize this. Paul begins to teach this mystery. It's not in your own efforts. It's not your own works that will ever be acceptable to God. It is God's work as the lamb of sacrifice that pleases him. It is the second offering of Jesus Christ. That is what will satisfy. And suddenly it's like all the dominoes, you know, all the things come into order. We're like, whoa, that makes sense. But it made sense in and through Jesus Jesus is the one that creates the answer, that solves the mystery, that solves the great riddle of all of these things in the Old Testament. This is a mystery. A mystery, mind you, that is solved in Jesus Christ. The sweat and blood of God's labor. This is what God is setting us up for throughout the Old Testament, is that it's actually his efforts and his labor that is acceptable. Galatians 2.16. So I've, I have some parenthetical statements in this that are not in the actual text. If, if you look for it, you're not going to find it. So when you see parentheses, that's my addition in italics. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law or by the sweat and blood of man's labor, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, the sweat and blood of God's labor, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ the sweat and blood of God's labor, and not by the works of the law, by the sweat and blood of man's labor. For by the works of the law, the sweat and blood of man's labor, shall no flesh be justified. That sounds a lot like Cain and Abel right there. What saves you? Where does your confidence lie? So when you see a a lesson like this from a first sound, and then it's converted into a second sound, it leaves a message right there. It's showing you something. And that is, which sort of offering are you bringing? Are you still stuck in that first sound territory where you are like Cain attempting to appease God with your own human goodness? It's really weird how we can do this, guys. In other words, we have a propensity to try and appease God even though our theology says it never will work. When you fumble and have a a foible or a skin knee in your spiritual life, have you ever noticed that your propensity is to try and live right for God so that you feel you can approach him and make things right between you? It's like you need a good patch of good living before you can, with integrity, say, God, will you you deal with this? Forgive me, I really wanted to live differently. We have a tendency to default back to a Cain offering. When in actuality, God wants to train our souls in a second sound. It is always and only His working that saves, that satisfies. When you have a skin knee, the best thing you can do is go to your God and say, God, I am so thankful that you are a God who cares for people with skinned knees. It is not my righteousness. It is not my goodness that has ever saved me. 
It is yours. And I want to look to that right now and not default back to my Cain offering. I want to go with Abel on this one. It's only the lamb that pleases. It's only the sweat and blood of your labor that can truly satisfy you. And that's what I cling to right now. That is what I set before you. I set before you your work. And I find my shelter in it. And that is how Christianity functions, even though we all have a tendency to be very Jewish and to go back under a law thinking that if we keep it, and if we, then somehow it will appease God. But God, right in the very beginning of the Bible, is saying, no, it's only the second offering that I will accept. So what saves you? Where does your confidence lie? Is it in your own sweat and blood, the offering of your own making, your own life, your own recipe? Or is it in his sweat and blood, his offering, his life given, his body broken and the pouring out of his blood? The first and seconds throughout the Bible. So there's a lot. And there's a lot more than this. But uh, Cain and Abel. So God rejects Cain's offering, accepts Abel's. He seems to favor the second. Well, that's not the only time. Ishmael is born first. Then Isaac is a second born. Ishmael is rejected. Poor guy. Don't you always feel bad for Ishmael? Whereas Isaac is the child of promise. And... God chooses the second. Esau and Jacob, twins within the womb of Rebekah. And yet, the first one, which should by all practical and all you know, normal genealogical means, be the one that gets the blessing. And yet Esau is going to be rejected, and Jacob, the second, is going to be the one that gets the blessing, that ends up being in the lineage of the Messiah. Amalek and Israel. So you have the descendants of Esau, or Amalek, which is known as the first nation. And Israel, the nation of God's favor. The second one is going to be chosen. Leah and Rachel. You ever felt bad for poor Leah? If you ever read that story, you have to admit, there's a little bleeding heart inside of you for poor Leah. I mean, what did she do wrong? And yet, in a strange sense, Jacob is going to favor Rachel, and out of Rachel is going to come Joseph, who's going to save the people. It's like, what? How does that work? And yet you're going to see this phenomenon over and over and over again throughout the Bible. Manasseh and Ephraim. Jacob, when he's blessing the two sons of Joseph, is going to purposely stick his blessing hand on the second board. And Joseph, even Joseph himself, is like, Father, you got it mixed up. And Jacob's like, I don't have it mixed up. Jacob knew exactly what he was doing. He's blessing the second. Saul and David. You have the first king of Israel who's going to be rejected. The second one is a man after God's own heart. Old covenant, new covenant. Adam, Jesus. Jesus is called the last Adam. He's called the second man. 77 generations in there. He's called the second man. You see, he is the fulfillment of what we understand as the second. Is having the first sound sufficient? If you have the Old Testament sound and yet reject the second sound found in the New Testament revelation, then what good is that first sound? Its whole purpose was to prepare you to receive the greater, more clear revelation and understanding. So I don't know if you guys remember what we're talking about in big picture. I know we've gotten off and we, we're in more safe territory. We're talking about the Old Testament. I just feel a lot better, Eric, as long as we're here instead of 1 Corinthians 14. 
However, what I want to set you up for over this, the rest of this message and the next one that follows is just to have a firm foundation biblically on first sounds. First sounds are not your enemy. First sounds are a beautiful thing. But if all you have is a first sound, it is not helpful. In and of itself, it does not do the grand work. What we need is the clear word of prophecy. What we need is that which sharpens the idea to a point of understanding. That is called the second sound. The same is true with the first sound given to the body of Christ. God is bringing us into a new kingdom, a holy foreign kingdom to our beings. And he, but he supplies us upon our arrival in it, the Holy Spirit, not to just bring us into this new territory, but to interpret this new language of heaven unto our souls in the person of Jesus Christ. Delicate territory I'm traipsing upon right now. However, when you come into the kingdom of heaven, you are given something. It's known as the Holy Spirit, and you become a new creature in Christ. Now, right now, you're seeing Eric Ludi, right? If you're watching this via video or you're here live. And Eric has eyes, he has a nose, he has a mouth, he has ears, he has a heart. You can't see the heart, but you guess where it's at, right? My feet, hands. However, spiritually, there was a, Eric Ludi spiritually was dead prior to Christ. But when I came to Christ and I believed in Christ and I shared in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, I resurrected with Christ. And you could say, Eric, you look exactly the same as you did before. Yes, on the outside, but on the inside, something has changed. There is, a, there is a creature or a creation, depending on which word you gravitate towards, that is new. And it has eyes. It has a nose that sniffs and discerns. It has a mind that is not just the mind of Eric. It's called the mind of Christ. It has a mouth, which we'll get to. It has a heart. It has hands and feet, if you want to say it that way. It's a spiritual man with a spiritual job to do. And it is meant to actually inhabit and work in a way that causes this body to be sensitized so that when something is happening in this world, I can discern with this new sniffer I have. I can think thoughts that are different than I thought as Eric. These hands can actually begin to function and do what Christ's hands would do. These feet would go where Christ's feet would go. This heart would beat with his burdens. But one of the first things that is going to happen is he's going to take this territory of the mouth. Now, we can feel awkward about it, but at Pentecost, you have to admit that's exactly what he did. He grabbed a hold of their mouths. Now, I could say their tongues, but that'll make us more uncomfortable, right? I'm trying to find that middle ground where you, feel, you still listen to me as I talk. And what he did is he, gave, he grabbed a hold of something that was set on fire, according to James, by the fire of hell. It's the, it's the body's littlest member. And God is going to take that and stake claim to it. Now, I'm not trying to teach in this week on speaking in tongues. What I'm wanting you to understand is the first thing that's going to happen in the church is a foreign tongue. That's like one of the first actions. However, it's not the most mature action of the church. Peter's going to get up and he's going to bring clarity to all this mystery that is stirring in the streets of Jerusalem. And it's the second sound that saves. The first sound is there, and it's a mystery, but it's the second sound that's really going to bring things home. It's the second sound that I want us to make sure we do not diminish under the banner of the fantastical things that we could say do occur in Christian history 
and do occur in the body of Christ today. One of the reasons why many people have shied away from these issues of the power of the Holy Spirit at large within the body of Christ and try and go to 1 Corinthians 13 and diminish it down to the fact that it ceased is because of the mishandling. In a strange sense, many of us have visited Corinth without ever being in Corinth. And when you visit Corinth and you see Corinth chaos, you have a tendency to arrive in 1 Corinthians 13, which is right before 1 Corinthians 14, ironically, and hang out as a cessationist because that's the best way to handle this abuse. And I would say there's a far better way to handle this, and that is to recognize that apart from the Holy Spirit and his power in us as a body, we can't do this thing. We desperately need all that he has to give. So instead of spending our energies trying to discount and discredit what God desires to do in our midst, we need to understand what it is, and we need to rightly appraise its value, but we need to remember what he is doing in our midst. He is not trying to just bring fantastical things about in our midst that stir us up and give us emotional highs. He's interested in giving us a clear word that we can speak to those around us to edify them and to build them up and to speak to this world so that they actually hear the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. He is in the business of bringing clarity. Therefore, we do not hinder the first sound of the Spirit, but we also refuse to allow the first sound to rule in the church as if it were the chief gift. For it is the second sound that builds the church into what it ought to be. 1 Corinthians 14, 4 through 5. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. Now, I, I could guess that the word prophesies there doesn't help you either. You know, it's like Eric is emphasizing, so it's, it's prophecy that we really need. <laughs> and you're like, Eric, you're not helping me, okay? That, that's just like swinging to a different side of the issue. Because tongues and prophecy both are sort of marred in this one clump uh, of just weirdness. However, if you understand prophecy to be a clear word, an understandable word of truth, it sort of would solve that, wouldn't you think? You know, and that's why you're not going to hear me typically use the word tongues. You're not going to hear me talk about prophecy in the church because it's not going to help most people understand what it actually is. They immediately default back to Old Testament prophecy of someone foretelling the future or someone clarifying some grand event in history or speaking to King David and saying, you are the man. In other words, that isn't necessarily what it is referring to here. And so as a result we have a tendency to default to wrong territory. Paul is then going to get more specific. I wish you all spoke with tongues. How are you guys doing there? I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless, indeed, he interprets, that the church may receive edification. So in other words, what Paul is making clear is the same thing I'm making clear in this message. It's the second sound that actually builds up the body of Christ. Paul is not against tongues, but he's very much for a clear word of prophecy. He's very much for a clear understanding of Jesus being proclaimed so that the body of Christ is built stronger as opposed to fractured or confused. Jesus is what needs to be known and understood and seen. The first sound is wonderful, 
but it's the second sound that edifies and makes strong. So a second sound, I'm calling it interpretation and prophecy in this message. In the next message, I'm going to unpack the idea of tongues and prophecy on a more granular level, which will be helpful. And however, in the meantime, I want us to not think of prophecy as weird. I I know it's almost impossible thing to ask. However, it's the Bible, right? Could we agree on that? And I, I would like to beg you not to think of tongues as weird too, but that's a hard sell, right? If for some of you, it's like, oh, you have a long way to go on that one, Eric. However, maybe we'll start with prophecy then. It seems like an easier uh, hill to climb this morning. I am a firm believer, even though I tend to not use the word, not because it's not biblical, but because the ideas that people have in their head when I say it are not what I mean. And so it does no good. I could be very biblically accurate by saying the right biblical word in this translation. However, if it's not helping my audience, I'm violating the very principle of the second sound, which is my whole goal is to edify and strengthen the body and not harm it and hinder it. A translation of Scripture into the English language does not demand I have to use that word. Just because that word made sense when it was translated does not mean it's the best word for this situation or for this sermon. It is a clear word to enunciate Jesus Christ, his truth, his gospel, to edify, to build up, to strengthen. That can come in various forms. However, it is a word that is clear. It is not a word that is confusing. It is not foreign. It is known. It is understood. You all speak a language. If I'm going to effectively communicate to you, I speak in that language a word of prophecy a word that is enabled by the Spirit of God. You see, if I'm speaking this, what Paul would be referring to as prophecy here, it's not something that's just out of my intellect. It is something that is enabled by the grace of God in me. As I am sensitive to the Spirit of God, I speak in agreement with his word, never contradicting it, but it's a powerful word because I am speaking by the nudge, by the push of God behind it. And as a result, my words do not just fall to the ground, but they actually can impact. They can change. They can influence. And these are the sorts of words that Paul is saying, I want you all to have those sorts of words. I want you all to desire that. I don't want you just to desire a foreign tongue. I want you to desire a clear word that you can speak and build each other up with. It's the second sound that saves If someone is going to come to Jesus Christ, it's because they're hearing a second sound. This has always been the case throughout history. They must hear the interpretation. Do you remember the Ethiopian Jew in the chariots, you know, where uh, Philip is going to come up to him and he's reading Isaiah 53 and he's like, what in the world is this talking about? And Philip gets up into the chariot and from that scripture, he speaks to him, Jesus You see, that's what we do. Right now, the Ethiopian Jew has a mystery in front of him. He doesn't understand Isaiah 53. Ironically, if I read Isaiah 53 to you, you would know what it means. It's talking about Jesus on the cross. Fairly clearly to all of us, right? That's because we have the key. But it's because someone spoke something clearly to us. It's the second sound that saves. 1 Corinthians 14, 12 through 19. Even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. If you want to grow in spiritual gifts, this is not for you. This is not some hobby thing that you have 
for you know, your home life. This is something that you're seeking, says Paul, to build each other up. So I want something so that I could strengthen you. That's a very different motive for desiring things from God. Imagine if you said, God, could I have $10 so I could give $10 away? And you genuinely meant it. Have you ever had it where, you're, I remember when I was young, I had a deal I was trying to crack with God. It was like, okay, this whole 10% tithe thing, if you gave me a million dollars, I will promise up front to give away 100,000 of it. And so you're like, that's brilliant, Eric. I know, I know, it's very brilliant. However, my motive was to gain $900,000 from the deal. There's something a bit sketchy about Eric's negotiating there, right? However, what if we were to say, God, if you could give me 10, I'm gonna pass along 10. And that's spiritual gifts for you in a nutshell. God, I want strength so I can give it and so I can see your church built up. I'm not looking for you just to give to me. I'm looking to have you give through me. And that is what is special about this topic, and that is why the devil goes out of his way to distort it. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret, because speaking in a tongue is not going to benefit anyone. So if our entire purpose here is to give a clear message, a second sound, then if you do speak in a tongue, you better pray that you can interpret that tongue because that tongue in and of itself is not going to do what it needs to do. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. Don't you love that scripture? Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding. Now, it is not to diminish either side of that, but some people hang out on the first part of his phrase. I speak in tongues more than you all, and you're just like, any questions? Look at Paul the Apostle said that. And yet, in the church, he has a very, very specific statement that he's going to make. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding. And that's his entire case. His entire case is love. Guys, the whole point of this gathering is to love one another, to serve one another, not to confuse one another. You're misusing something, and you're using it in the wrong context. God can give you a first sound, but it's the second sound that you must go after for the edification of the body. So I'd rather speak five words with my understanding than I may teach others also, than 10,000 words in a tongue. The first sound We call it the joy, the peace, the exhilaration of forgiveness from sin, the wonder of freedom from sin. It's a beautiful thing. Pentecost, that first moment of encounter when you see, when you awaken from your stupor and the Spirit of God is working upon you in a powerful way. Beautiful thing, right? The second sound, the sharing of this joy with others. You were not given this experience so that you could just hold on to it. You were given this experience to share it. And all of us know that. It's supposed to go from first to second. The second is when you actually take all of these mysterious tears and laughter and joy as you're over in the corner going, oh God, and you're making noises over here. 
to actually interpreting that to someone else when they're like, what is going on with you? Now, you can keep blubbering and keep crying and keep you know, laughing, but it's not going to edify them. I'm not saying it's not a fun thing that's going on here and beautiful. I'm saying what's going to change them is when you say, I've been changed by Jesus. When you can clarify what is going on and you can interpret that into something that you can hand off, that is the value point right there. So the sharing of this joy with others, the passing along of this hope and peace, the teaching and impartation of this exhilarating wonder unto a lost and dying world. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and now with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Corinth indeed had the first sounds of new birth. They did. I mean, everything we're talking about, everything that has become controversial in, the, in church history was happening in Corinth. They had first sounds. What they needed was the second sound, marked by love, clothed by love, where they were edifying one another. Instead, they were dividing. They were contentious. Very similar to the way we are today, which is why this topic could just divide us into camps of Pentecostal and Charismatic and everyone else. We could easily just create the same problem and propagate it into another generation. Or we could all rally together and say, let's actually do what Paul is telling us to do. Let's not segregate, let's not divide, let's allow the Spirit of God and the grace of God to work in our midst to unite us. That's what a spiritual gift does. The gift of grace is meant to edify and to strengthen us as the church, not divide us. The fact that we have been divided over it seems to be the obvious show that something is off. Corinth indeed had the first sounds of new birth, but as long as they only had the first sounds, they were still functioning in their first behaviors. So here's our uh, final statement. If we really are a loving body, we will seek to grow up under the second proofs of new birth, where we are loving, we are serving, we are giving. You will know my disciples by their love for one another. These are the second proofs, not just the initial movement of grace that awakens us, but the one that takes that grace that has been applied and leverages it unto love and begins to show forth the beauty, the love, the grace of Jesus to this world around them. That's what we're after as the church of Jesus Christ. Father, this is something you must do in us and through us. There's a lot of baggage when it comes to this topic, and I pray, Lord, that as we walk through this and just stare at your scriptures, that you would just melt it away, that barnacles would fall off, that we would not be distracted by experiences or what we've witnessed, but that we would just go after the real thing, that we would not shy away from what your Holy Spirit desires to do inside of us. We love you and we trust you. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. 
Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.